If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, has the Trump presidency entered a new, even bolder phase? A lot of the president's aides and operatives are in prison or going to prison, and none of his political enemies are. Then, Donald Trump as architecture czar. We debate the proposal to require all new federal buildings to be built in the classical style. Imitations of classical architecture is just going to be this, like, hideous world of kitsch. And finally, a recommendation. I sacrificed my wife and unborn child rather than go into the cheetah cage myself. Earlier this month, President Trump stood in the East Room of the White House and held up a copy of the Washington Post with the front page headline, Trump Acquitted. He clearly felt vindicated, and he's been acting like it. He has fired officials he considers disloyal. He has issued pardons to people with ties to him. His Justice Department has intervened in the sentencing of his ally Roger Stone. And Trump has signaled that he may issue a pardon anyway. We're seeing a newly emboldened Trump. And the question is, where does it end? How will this version of Trump use the powers of the presidency in his re-election campaign? Michelle, it seems like a chilling question, and I'm interested in how you're thinking about this. I mean, I'm utterly terrified and also in despair because it seems like people are so ground down and exhausted that they're not really will, able to muster the will to push back on this, right? Like, if you saw this in another country, um, you know, a president firing prosecutors because they won't uh, start politically motivated investigations of his enemies or even won't kind of get those enemies convicted when the politically motivated investigations like of Andrew McCabe don't um, aren't fruitful. You know, if you saw this promising to pardon people who break laws on his behalf If you saw kind of any of what's going on in another country, you would understand that it was a country in a rapid slide into authoritarianism. He knows now that he has carte blanche from a Republican-controlled Senate. He has signaled his eagerness and willingness to cheat in the election. I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Let's say Bernie Sanders is the nominee. You know, there was an FBI investigation into his wife's handling of the finances at Burlington College in Vermont, and it didn't go anywhere. But I would not be at all surprised to see that reopen or really to see an FBI investigation into any of his rivals. And so you you just have... We've entered this phase of rapidly increasing lawlessness, purges, and impunity, and really all of our systems of accountability, everything that we were told was going to keep this president in check are failing. 
And we've now got a loyalist, Richard Grinnell, who's the director of national intelligence. Um, we've got William Barr, who likes to make noises about how he's defying Trump, but so far uh, doesn't seem to actually put that in practice. And Ross, I mean, I, I agree with Michelle. I think the rational expectation at this point is Trump will figure out some way to launch an investigation of whoever the Democratic nominee is. And so uh, aren't we really seeing the reversal of 50 years of, of norms of how people are supposed to treat the presidency? In part, yeah. I mean, I think I've assumed all along that what Trump wants is the, the kind of hand-in-glove work with his own Justice Department and um, the FBI and the CIA and so on that you often saw from presidents at mid-century in the, you know, John F. Kennedy makes his brother attorney general. Lyndon Johnson has the CIA spy on Barry Goldwater um, in the campaign era. And I don't think that is, in fact, authoritarianism. I think it was, you know, I think it's bad. But in my role as saying it's not as bad as authoritarianism, I'll say it's not as bad as authoritarianism. Wait, Ross, can I just I also when it, yep. because, because I know I've heard you do this before, right, to say that this is basically sort of reversion to pre-Nixon norms. But what are the examples of any of those, Robert F. Kennedy or any of these other um, Justice Department figures that work closely with the presidents, kind of trying to imprison members of the opposition party or trying to imprison officials that had for some reason displeased the president? Without getting too deep into the weeds of Jimmy Hoffa's guilt or innocence, I think RFK's war on Jimmy Hoffa was a case of a political appointee um, using the power of the Justice Department against someone who didn't like the Kennedys. I mean, his, if you go further back, Woodrow right, but Wilson, how about somebody put, who Woodrow Wilson totally put all his up. political opponents in jail for a little while. Not, I'm exaggerating, but he put his political opponents in jail during during World War One. And much of what the FBI did to political enemies of different presidents, and some of this was more Hoover than the presidents themselves, but was worse than anything Trump has done. And then the other thing. I think what's happening is, yeah, the president feels more unbound and he feels like he has more room to demand things of his Justice Department. But you also continue to see the people in the Justice Department itself, including Barr, trying to find ways to appease the president without actually doing what he wants. So you get an extra layer of investigation of someone like McCabe that doesn't lead to charges being filed. You have a situation where Barr intervenes in the sentencing of Roger Stone, but in a way that actually ends up being in line with what the judge thinks Stone, the sentence Stone should get. And you have a situation right now at this moment where a lot of the president's aides and operatives are in prison or going to prison and none of his political enemies are. And the Biden investigation, quasi-investigation, I agree, hurt Biden's campaign. At the same time, it also blew up in Trump's face in certain ways and led to his impeachment. So I, I don't I think that the the real question is what happens after the presidential election if Trump is reelected and who does he replace Barr with in a scenario where Barr leaves. But I also think right now in a lot of these cases, it's still the sort of management of presidential childishness and presidential whims rather than the Justice Department just charging the president's enemies because they aren't. And even as Stone and Manafort go to prison, and that that's not authoritarianism exactly. If the president's allies are in prison 
and his enemies are being raged at on Twitter. I think, well, yeah, but they're not just being raged at on Twitter, right? They're being subjected to protracted politically motivated investigation. I mean, this is the Justice Department being weaponized as a tool of legal harassment, and it doesn't have to reach the worst case scenario where people, where innocent people go to prison. Innocent people can just be tormented for years for no reason except that they've run afoul of a president who aspires to authoritarianism, even if he hasn't yet shed all of the constraints. And it also just seems like a total overestimation of Barr to say that he has been kind of managing presidential childishness or figuring out ways not to um, give in to Trump's demands. It seems to me that he has tried very much to give in to Trump's demands that would certainly the when you see reporting from the Justice Department, that's he's not seen as somebody who's who protects them. You know, career prosecutors, he's seen as kind of a commissar. And just because there are people below him or push back enough or the press is bad enough that he some that he sees the need to kind of feign independence while continuing to do all of the president's bidding. Um, I mean, it seems to me that his installment in the Justice Department has been another great leap towards a breakdown in the rule of law in this country. I mean, Ross, we've seen all these leaks about how upset Barr is, and they strike me as pretty self-serving. Um, uh, it's, yes, I, it's think like, that, I think that's fair. It's like when you hear, you know, some company wants to argue against a tax increase and they say, we're considering laying off workers or something like that. It reminds me of that. I mean, I go ahead. No. So I guess I was going to ask you, what's the evidence that Barr actually is bothered by what Trump's doing as opposed to Barr just wishes Trump were a little bit more like Viktor Orban and were more effective at hiding the way he's trying to subvert the rule of law. I mean, I guess the evidence is, again, that the manifest, the things that Barr has done have mostly involved giving some extra scrutiny to cases where Trump seems to have a personal interest. And then at the end of the day, the cases still end up not being charged. So I feel like a deep-dyed authoritarian attorney general would be more eager to actually enact the president's wishes instead of um, sort of continuing investigations a little longer than appropriate and then producing outcomes that displease the president. Let me ask about another piece of this, which is Russian interference in the election. So it's come out in the last week or so that Russia is again interfering um, on behalf of Trump. And Russia is also interfering on behalf of Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. What does that mean, David? How is Russia? What has come out is an intelligence estimate that suggests that Russia intends to do something on behalf of Trump and Sanders. There is not, I mean, what is the Russian interference on behalf of Sanders right now? You know, we had one really meaningful and substantial piece of Russian interference in the last election, which was the hack of the DNC. And then we've had a lot of really overblown stuff about Russian memes on behalf of Trump and maybe now Sanders. And I just think it's there's a big gap between the Russians are poised to hack Trump's rivals and leak all their material. And the Russians would like Bernie Sanders to win the Democratic nomination. And a few guys at, you know, the information security, whatever in Moscow are tweeting on his behalf. Yeah. And, and I can't following the intelligence stuff. 
I can't tell which is which is more likely. I'm probably a little bit more alarmed than you are by the social media stuff Russia did in 2016. But but I take your point about 2020, which is um, it's not completely clear what they are doing right now. I guess, Michelle, uh, you've made a strong argument in your column that you don't think Russia actually wants Bernie Sanders to be president. I'd be interested. Do you think Russia wants Bernie Sanders to be the nominee because uh, that would make Trump's election more likely? Julia Yaffe, um, a Russian-speaking journalist who has a piece in GQ where she's talking to a lot of, you know, people in Russia, um, you know, kind of advisors to various Russian government figures about why they're doing this. And they all want Trump reelected and see Bernie Sanders as his weakest opponent. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're that they're right, right? A lot of people thought that a lot of people wanted Donald Trump to be the nominee because they thought he would be Hillary Clinton's weakest opponent. But I think, you know, if they ended up kind of catching the tiger by the tail and actually doing something to help Bernie Sanders become president, they would really not like the results because Bernie Why San- not? because Bernie Sanders' foreign policy is fundamentally anti-authoritarian. I mean, I actually think that Bernie Sanders sees the world sort of how I see the world in that there is this growing axis growing axis of authoritarianism, you know, represented by Putin, you know, MBS, the spread of right-wing populism in Europe, you know, Xi in China, and that there needs to be a sort of alliance of democracies to fight that, right? So Bernie Sanders is not a militarist. He's not inclined to use um, military force but he's definitely not an isolationist, right? He's he's very much um, a kind of globalist of the old school who wants to see an international coalition of progressive governments to fight the scourge of growing authoritarianism. Whereas Putin, one might even whereas call it Putin, an international, an international, maybe. where right? Whereas Putin is basically, you know, the patron of a lot of this sort of um, growing authoritarianism. I I just have to say I think that I I agree I sus, I suspect and expect that Moscow prefers Trump to Sanders but I also strongly suspect that Moscow would see lots of upsides from a Sanders presidency and that basically with Sanders they would think all right we are losing Trump's rhetorical comfort with authoritarianism and we are you know facing an American president who's going to be more rhetorically aggressive against us at the same time Sanders entire career suggests that things like arming Ukraine or sanctions that he is he's often voted against on Russia um, that he might be less hawkish than any other Democrat um, it also suggests I think that he would be more inclined than the Trump White House has been to, you know, agree to various arms deals. And I think there's pieces of Bernie's platform that, you know, I think God willing will never be enacted. But, you know, the, the a ban on fracking would be the greatest gift that in the short term that Putin's economy could receive. But I think there's some clear upside to Sanders, at least relative to all the other Democrats, maybe not to Trump for uh, Moscow. Your name and message after the beep, and we might play you on the show. Hi, my name is Brooks Whitehouse. I'm from Greensboro, North Carolina, and I'm calling to answer Michelle's question about how worried are you about what's happening with Bill Barr and the whole Roger Stone thing. And I have to say that this is not only 
the tip of the iceberg of what I think is actually going on in the Trump administration, but I think it's also the tip of the spear that is killing my belief in America, uh, whether it was wrongly or rightly uh, in existence. But, you know, I had a, I have a father-in-law who passed away, Irv Warrenstein, who always used to say that the thing that made him most proud to be an American was watching the Watergate hearings and knowing that the foundation of our system could withstand and ultimately reject corruption. And I have a tremendous feeling of sadness over watching the impeachment hearings for Trump, just that we might not be able to withstand this. And now that that opportunity has passed, things are moving rapidly in the wrong direction. Hi, um, my name is Skylar Burris. I'm 20 years old, so I'm on probably the younger end of your listener spectrum. Um, but I just wanted to call in and talk about how I feel, particularly regarding um, the breakdown in our government and accountability in our government. It is absolutely terrifying for me to think that we are going to, that I'm going to live most of my life in a time where politicians aren't held accountable and the highest power in the world isn't held accountable. I think that the way we think about politics is going to have been changed forever by Trump's presidency and the actions he's taken. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. If you've ever walked around Washington, D.C., you know that federal buildings come in all sorts of styles. There are neoclassical columns and modernist stone and much more. And it's not just Washington. All over the country, various federal officials design government buildings in different ways. Some people in the Trump administration want to put an end to this architectural chaos. Their proposal, for President Trump's consideration, would encourage every new federal building to be in the classical style. The order is called Making Federal Buildings Beautiful Again. Ross, you're often in the position of mildly defending President Trump on the show. You argue that his actions aren't that bad or that unusual. But on this issue, you actually want to play a different role and offer a full-throated celebration of Trumpian policy. Yes, this is, this is a really good idea. And let me, let me tell you why. So first of all, 
the way public architecture in the United States works is not some creative, diverse chaos where different federal officials in different places make different decisions. It is a guild-dominated approach going that goes back to directives issued in the 1960s that say that designs for federal buildings have, should flow from the architectural profession to the government and not vice versa. So there isn't some amazing democratic thing happening. There's an architectural guild that has a strong bias away from classical forms in, and even anything basically pre-1950s, 1960s. So it's not like they're all in for art deco or art modern either. And um, I have a personal bias towards architectural forms from before the 1960s for the obvious reason that in fact they are more attractive. But I don't even think I need to convince you both of that. I think if you look at the executive order, it is not mandating that every building be built in a neoclassical style. It is suggesting that there should be a bias in that style's favor, that other, especially regional forms of architecture like Spanish missionary architecture in Florida or California should also be strongly considered, that localities should have more say in the design of federal buildings than they have right now. And I think all of those are good and reasonable things. And I think the result would be probably a world where under Republican presidents, you got more neoclassical architecture. And under Democratic presidents, you got more of the wonderful, you know, the w wonderful architecture that has so has made our city so beautiful. And I'm not being serious there for the last 50 years. And that would reflect a more democratic and diverse approach to federal architecture than we have right now. It's amazing to me that you think that you're going to get anything but persistent mediocrity out of this, right? Like I like like you, I like old buildings usually better than newer ones, but modern uh, kind of imitations of classical architecture is just going to be this like hideous world of kitsch. I would also say that just, you know, this is pretty far down on the list of things to be outraged about, but I'll take that as a win. There's a reason to be worried when a fascist president issues edicts against aesthetic modernism. I mean, without getting too deep into that debate, the thing about aesthetic modernism is that it's been incredibly adaptable to different regimes. So the first modernists included figures like Philip Johnson, who was a literal fascist early in his career. And what modernism has been good at is saying under under totalitarians, it's the architecture of the people and the architecture of the Volk. And then mm -hmm. under liberal bureaucrats in the 60s, it's the architecture of sleek, sleek modernity. And now it's being defended as the architecture of diversity and anti-whiteness. And really, it's just the same mostly unattractive, occasionally successful school that, again, is a guild phenomenon that has no relationship to what actual American citizens want. And so I think if Trump... A if guild tr phenomenon. I mean, you are a conservative. You, on, you, you can't actually think that we should be... Well, I guess you're also a populist, right? But uh, yes. I mean, do you, do you really want a kind of lowest common denominator populist um, approach to federal architecture? You're basically going to have a bunch of cities that look like Mar-a-Lago. I mean, one, I do think Mar-a-Lago is slightly more... I'm, I'm going to uh -oh. be very controversial. I think Mar-a-Lago is slightly more attractive than some federal buildings. Um, I think I think your your initial point, Michelle, about the problem of kitsch is a real problem, and this is, but this is a sort of society wide problem that um, you know is is a problem, if if I may, of decadence, right? Where both mo both modernist architecture and its 
pre-modern or classical rivals struggle to do something new or find something new to do and say. And so, yeah, you are in certain ways choosing between, in many cases, different forms of mediocrity. I do think, however, that the what's the virtues of a lot of classical forms in architecture is that with some exceptions, they protect you from the worst of mediocrity because you're following sort of time-tested forms and, you know, sort of aesthetic forms that even when they aren't incredibly well done, don't lurch into either the offensive or the banal quite as easily as a lot of modernist architecture does. But I will concede that I don't expect this to produce necessarily an immediate renaissance. But on the populist question, I am totally upfront in believing that on the question of what makes an attractive building, polls of uh, public opinion surveys of the buildings that Americans respond to that they like mostly involve buildings from before 1940 or 1950 and polls of what architects like mostly involve buildings built since. And I am on the side of the unwashed masses on that question. No, I am too. Look, I live in a building from the late 1800s. I, you know, I would, I aspire to someday live in a Victorian um, or at least a brownstone. So it's not as, you know, right. So I agree with a lot of the critiques of modernist architecture, you know, particularly sort of Bauhaus period, brutalist. But, you know, even since then, it's, it's, it's more rare than it should be that you see a kind of modern building that is really easy to appreciate if you are not a sort of architecture nerd. You know, that said, you just wrote a book about decadence, right? And about how one sign of decadence is that instead of innovating, mm -hmm. we're yep. just recycling and rehashing all of these forms from yep. the past. So it seems that the solution or the critique to say, like, a lot of modern architecture is... Um, you know, is kind of ugly or is only built to serve the aesthetic preferences of this small niche audience is to demand better modern architecture, not more cheesy Corinthian columns tacked onto new buildings. And I mean, I, I will say that I I would honestly prefer attempts at an Art Deco or Art Nouveau revival to a strict neoclassical revival. And I think you're, I, I mean, Michelle, I... T my basic view is that modern architecture itself has entered into decadence. And so if we're going to escape decadence, you want to reach back deeper into the past in order to achieve the Renaissance, which is what Renaissances often do. But again, I will concede that right now there's a way in which probably we end up choosing between two different kinds of decadence. David, can you haven't you haven't weighed in here. Have I persuaded you on, you know, the I mean, I, I think there is something to you know, what Michelle is saying, I mean, there's something where even good, pious progressives and liberals love refurbishing 19th century Victorians, right? Yeah. But then they expect federal bureaucrats to work in these lumbering, you know, behemoths built not for human habitation. Isn't that a strain? Isn't that a slight tension? It is a slight tension. And I mean, I think you've hit on what the key issue here is. There's a difference between what kind of architecture architects like and, and between what kind of architecture non-architects like. And well, not and not all architects. There is in fact, there are in fact architects who work in classical and Spanish mission and art deco and a million other styles. They just are not the dominant force in the guild. Yeah. I mean, look, this proposal does does not outrage me. What I've been trying to think about is what are the worst examples of 
recent government architecture, and are there any good examples? And I mean, to me, the best recent piece of government architecture is the African-American Smithsonian Museum. Um, obviously, this is all subjective, but I love that building. Um, I can't think of any government buildings um, that basically try to be creative that don't end up looking fairly ugly, except for that one. Can we just briefly note the like extreme irony of the kind of one of the like seminal books of the modern conservative movement is about a modernist architect who oh yes right? Howard like, Howard Rourke I mean, the hero of the Fountainhead right and I mean I've I, I'm trying to remember what happens but right he he dynamites this these these buildings because they are they compromise his vision in some way. They compromise his his avant-garde vision, right? And there's like a whole generations of conservatives reared on this book who are now, you know, kind of lining up behind state-sponsored... I think the the libertarian. I don't know. I think the Randians. Right. It's a very. It's it's a it's a progression that seems like emblematic of the progression towards Trumpism more generally. But I guess in this case, I, you know, I I mean, I enjoy Ayn Rand's novels as sort of escapist fiction set in an imaginary world filled with people who don't resemble any real human being. Um, But as political texts, many conservatives have always considered them awful as much as obviously progressives do. And I think a progression to a conservatism that uh, you know, is more J.R.R. Tolkien than Ayn Rand is a sign of of actual progress. Michelle, I thought you were going to make a completely different point when you started with, can we just note the irony? And I thought you were going to talk about Trump Tower and, and Donald Trump's oh, right, personal. Right. No, and Trump's, and Trump's personal taste is not, you know, it's it's not generally defensible. But it's not modernist either. It's just like dictator chic, right? I mean, it's just ugly. Yes, although I do believe many of the buildings that he has built over the years are officially modernist style buildings. He seems to favor, I I may be wrong about this, but sort of modernist on the outside and then his living quarters are sort of garish. Wrapped in gold. Right, sort of like W, it's like world wrestling meets Versailles. But I, I do, I, again, the most controversial thing I'll say on this episode is that All things considered, Mar-a-Lago is not that bad. Okay. Oh, good God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And with that, we will turn to our weekly recommendation. Ross, it is your turn this week. Uh, I really hope you're not going to recommend that we all make a trip to Mar-a-Lago. No, I'm not. I'm going to cheat and do two, a main one and a minor one. So the main one uh, is uh, I took a family trip. Uh, with my kids and wife to visit her, my sister-in-law, her sister, and her family in Pittsburgh. And every time we go to Pittsburgh, we visit the Pittsburgh Zoo. Uh, and it's just a terrific zoo. And it, it is my rec- my main recommendation for this week. Um, I have sort of a certain pro-animal queasiness whenever I'm in zoos. Uh, so I'll note that for the record. But Pittsburgh just has – it's sort of a terrific – terrain-based space. Um, We signed my oldest daughter up for a meet the cheetah experience where she fed cheetah some sort of terrifying meat. And we got there early enough that, one, the animals were out without lots of crowds of people, and particularly the polar bear 
apparently has a morning routine where he swims laps basically um, in this space that create it creates a sort of tunnel of water that you can walk through and so the polar bear swims around you uh, and it's pretty it's just pretty it's pretty incredible uh, a picture of me encountering the polar bear is currently my Twitter photo and listeners can try and tell which face is mine and which is the polar bears but it was just you know if you can if if you like zoos and if you have kids and if you're in Pittsburgh you should go to the Pittsburgh Zoo and then my other recommendation which you know my publicist would kill me if I didn't offer is that my book on decadence is out as we're recording this right now and so um I have to recommend that as well well first of all congratulations second of all can you tell us some more about feeding the cheetah like, do they put your daughter in? <laughs> so I was expecting that. I didn't. My wife went in with her. I sacrificed my wife and unborn child rather than go into the cheetah cage myself. Um, I think my understanding is that we have some pictures. My understanding is the cheetah stays. There's still a grill between you and the cheetah and you just get close to it and you can feed it through the grill. But the nine, my nine year old was not literally alone with a cheetah uh, in an open space. <laughs> Okay. She was feeding it raw meat through some through sort of, so, through yeah. some sort of life saving yeah. Michelle, what's your attitude towards zoos or animal jails? I just feel so guilty about them. I mean, I like to, like right, like my kids like the zoo, so I like I'll take them. Um and it's a nice place to take your kids, but I do feel really, really guilty and queasy about it. Yeah. I mean I think, you know, you sort of you try and assuage that feeling by recognizing that in some of these cases the zoos really are doing a lot of important conservation work and protecting species and so on. So that goes on too. But but I I share that feeling around confined wild animals. Yeah. Okay, Ross, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is go to the Pittsburgh Zoo if you're in Pittsburgh. And uh, while you're there, go on Amazon.com and buy my new book, The Decadent Society. Excellent. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts or questions, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Michaela Teodori, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ye. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you back here next week. Actually, there's a table right out there. That way you can crinkle without me. Um, Ross is stepping outside to eat a sandwich.